Hello, welcome back to another episode of Banter, a podcast brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. This is another remote episode today because of the pandemic, but we are joined by AEI's visiting scholar, John Yu, who is also a professor of law at UC Berkeley. Uh, Professor Yu joins us today to talk about the constitutional issues and legal issues raised by the pandemic, what governors can and can't do, and what the president can and can't do to reopen the economy when this is all over. That was Max Frost. This is your other Max, Max Tui. We are delighted to have John Yu. He's a terrific, renowned scholar of law, a contributor to Fox News, beloved in conservative circles. We covered a lot of ground and can't wait for you to listen in. And I'm Matt Winesett, your third and final host. John Yu, in addition to being a expert in law, is also a banter superfan, which we highly appreciate. But for now, without further ado, here is our interview with John Yu. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. John, thank you so much for coming on Banter today. Oh, it's uh, great to be here. That's my Nikki Haley. (laughs) introduction and then here's my john bolton what do you want as a fan of your show i i I actually listened to all of them so i like that little pastiche of all the people saying thank you for having me at the beginning (laughs) well if if uh the interview goes well enough today we may put you into the beginning no 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 that message of what do you want from john bolton that's what the united nations has been asking him for years (laughs) <laughs> you know bolton never takes their calls of course <laughs> you know, whenever the u.n calls they're like why do we keep getting voicemail <laughs> that's right <laughs> so we're, we're thrilled to have you with us today because obviously the pandemic has prompted a lot of conversation about what governments can and can't do legally constitutionally so the first thing we'd like to ask you is does president trump have the power to reopen the economy on his own Oh, that's easy. No, he doesn't have the power to ruin the economy by himself, thank God. But he also doesn't have the power to apply, you know, CPR or shock treatment to get it off the mat either because of our federal system of government. We aren't a unitary system like a China or a Japan or even a France. We have a system of two different sets of sovereign governments, the federal government and the state government, and they share power over things like the pandemic. So, John, do the governors, though, even really have the power to reopen the economy? Because doesn't it really depend on how comfortable and how safe people feel? And even if the governors say you can go to a bar again, won't won't the economy really come down to if people feel comfortable going out of their house? Yeah, that's a good question, (laughs) non-Max. That's that's the only way I know you. You're non-Max. The other two guys are Max. I don't get that. Um, No, that's a good point. I mean, ultimately, it's about what the people want to do. And we're an amazing country. And there's a lot of things in AEI. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out why is America exceptional? It is exceptional. Why? And one of those is the way Americans voluntarily obey the law. I mean, that sets us really apart from China, where people are compelled with sometimes terrifying violence to stay indoors or not stay indoors, or a place like Italy, where they just do what they want anyway, no matter what the government says which is part of the problem with why they had such a bad reaction to the coronavirus. Here, 
it's amazing. People are from other countries are stunned when they find out most Americans file their taxes voluntarily. And this is another point with your, Matt, your, this answer to your question is, no matter what the government says, there aren't that many actually government police officers in the country. No government can actually force Americans really to stay indoors or stay outdoors unless they really want to. There's an interesting, first of all, the federal government clearly can't do it. There's an interesting statistic that I looked up, which was that if there's anything close to a police agency in our government, it's the FBI. The New York City Police Department has more officers on the street than all of the FBI has employees. So there's no way the federal government could actually enforce any order in the country without voluntary agreement by the people. And I think that's true of the states. So you, know, so you think about the second largest city in the country is LA out here in California. They have far fewer police officers than even the New York Police Department. If people living in LA just wanted to go outdoors, there's nothing the government could really do to stop them. We understand that states, and you recently wrote about this in a Fox Business piece you, you published, that states have the ability to take major steps to ensure public health and safety. But at what point are they going too far where they really are infringing on, on our civil liberties? For example, parks being closed, the, the park around the corner that has public tennis courts. Tennis seems to be a socially distancing sport, but you can't play tennis. That's, that's why wasps play it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Actually, the, all the social distancing, I keep telling people, now you know what it's like to be Asian. No handshakes, <laughs> no hugs. We don't like it. Be inscrutable. You know, with an Asian guy like me, it doesn't really matter whether you have the mask on or not. We're still not making any facial expressions at all. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to put this on AEI or Comedy Central. This is great. <laughs> I thought it was the same thing. <laughs> you guys haven't been in the office that You've been long. Listening I've, been, to I've been there for 15 years. It's a, it's a riot. Don't listen to Brookings, what they're saying. I know they <laughs> But, you know, is it, have they gone too far? Have the states gone too far? I think in some states they have. And the easy places to point to are, strangely, states, states that are supposed to be conservative, like Kentucky, which tried to prevent people from having religious services, places where, uh, you're, as you point out, you could still engage in activities and still maintain whatever distance our health czars want us to keep. Uh, so yeah, so closing parks seems irrational. There's a case in Colorado of a former, actually a former Colorado state trooper who was playing t-ball in a park with his daughter and they arrested him and took him off to prison because they said he actually wasn't allowed to be that close to another person in a park, which actually turned out to be wrong. So you could see, as with any of these things, there's overzealous enforcement at times. There are going to be people in particularly state and really local and city governments who just love running everything. And that does cut against, I think, the American spirit of individualism. And I think, so I think the way to think about your question is, uh, I think a lot of Americans are going to accept a short-term lockdown, but they need to have explained to them the trade-offs involved. And as the curves are going down on infection rates and deaths, and we're still losing oh, close to, you know, at least probably a trillion or more dollars a month in lost economic costs, mostly falling on people at the lower end of the income ladder, people are going to start disobeying, I think. Uh, you're already seeing protests, which are just sporadic here and there. But if this goes on another month and you don't see the need for it, 
And I think that's what political leadership is about. If you really expect people to voluntarily to comply with these orders, uh, governors have to come out, the president has to come out and explain why they really are necessary. Now, I think, uh, I think it was you that wrote about the pol- uh, police powers that state governments have for protecting mm-hmm. public health and that kind of stuff. And now I know one state that's taken a lot of flack for this is Michigan, where the governor has put restrictions on everything. I think you can go to Home Depot, but you can shop in some aisles and not other aisles. You can't go see family members unless you're helping them take care of them because unless you're helping them take care of them because they're sick. Those are such minute things. The governors really have the power to say that. I mean, that like there's no court that can say stop. That's not okay. So under our federal system, the states have what's called the police power, and that means that they actually control all regulation involving people and activity within their borders, as long as it's not something that's exclusively in federal control, like foreign affairs, for example, or interstate markets. And so they do have that power to open and shut businesses for public health and safety reasons. It used to be the case that our courts were much more intrusive uh, about whether the governments were really doing it for health and safety or for some ulterior motive. Uh, So again, the uh, example of churches we were talking about, where the regulations uh, as applied to churches that you couldn't meet even in a church, no matter whether you've sat six feet apart or not, or, you know, staggered the services or not, was that really an effort to protect public health and safety? Or did the government officials really just want to stick it to religious people? So courts used to apply that to all kinds of health and safety measures. Uh, But this was, uh, this, this um, line of thinking or review, that was one of the casualties of the New Deal. So the Supreme Court used to allow courts to ask tough questions when these kinds of draconian regulations uh, were imposed. And then you guys probably know the story or or you don't. Depends where you went to college. If you went to a really prestigious college, you definitely don't know the story. (laughs) And if you went to a small, small college, you probably know the story, right? The Supreme Court uh, was the great obstacle to many things that look like what the government's got in mind now back in the New Deal, except it's just compressed. You know, you, after four years of the Great Depression, FDR gets elected, they get desperate. They start trying all kinds, I think, crazy macro and microeconomic ideas. The Supreme Court actually successfully stopped it for about three years. FDR won a stunning reelection in 1936 and threatened to pack the court, right? He threatened to add six justices to the court to get to change its ways. The court gave up. And one of the casualties of that was now states and local governments have a relatively free hand in issuing these kinds of measures from judicial review. So there's still some bright lines. So for example, Governor Newsom here or Governor Cuomo say, I'm gonna take over Hilton hotels and use the rooms you know, to, to house coronavirus patients. That's still a taking. That's still something they have to pay compensation for to the owners, but closing all the businesses down, even though it's causing huge losses. And the business owners didn't do anything wrong, as it were. They weren't themselves unhealthy. It wasn't like uh, walking into some of my favorite Chinese restaurants where I get very uncomfortable if it's too clean, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to eat at a clean Chinese restaurant. That means they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they're spending too much time on your guy's perception, not cooking the food. That's my view. But, you know, They have almost unlimited power to shut down any restaurant because they think it is unhealthy. But that's not the case with all these businesses. They didn't do anything that made them unhealthy. But still, courts aren't going to step in and try to strike that down. They're going to basically defer during the period of the emergency, I think. 
Is this a good thing or a bad thing, though? Because I know this is kind of an internal debate among judicial conservatives right now anyway. When we had George Will on the podcast over the summer, he talks about in his new book how he wants courts to look much more closely yeah. at these laws to determine if they actually are there for health and safety reasons. But then there's a whole different, I mean, I, I thought the more dominant mode of conservative judicial thinking was restraint, judicial restraint. So where do you come down on that issue? So if you had George on, do you think he had sweats and a bow tie on while he was on? I, you could see him. What did he have on? I'm, I want to know. I think, I think it was just a normal tie. He was there for an ADI no, event No, I've that never day. seen that. You know, well, I'll have to so he was back. getting wild. He was getting crazy during the lockdown, and so he wore a regular tie because he couldn't take it. That's his relaxed at-home look, this regular back, tie. This was back in June. He did a video with oh. uh, Jonah Goldberg that day, so he, we can look into the archive and, and find out. How's, how's he doing without baseball? Is he surviving without baseball? <laughs> well, he's – well, he's picking fights with all sorts of judicial conservatives. So I do want to know there's like the him yeah. and the, I think Randy Barnett have a, have a view and they kind of argue against what the late Justice Scalia yep. thought. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, a divide amongst conservatives generally. And then amongst people who care about law is how active should the courts be? Um, in fact, there's a big argument going on now about whether uh, should Trump win re-election? Should conservatives just say to hell with restraint? We've won two big elections in a row. We've put all these conservatives on the courts. Uh, why not let them do what the liberals did to us for 40 years? Mm -hmm. Then there's a, so those are the people who would be like a Will or a Barnett. And let's use judicial power in the cause of whatever libertarianism, restoring social values. That's what some people are arguing now is let's strike down all those cases that we don't like, uh, like Roe versus Wade or a gay marriage. And then the older view, I think the more consistent conservative view, which is sort of Scalia's view, Bork's view, who was, I, Bork predates you, but Bork was a great uh, civil disobedier. I don't know what you would call them in, uh, at AEI. So famously, I don't know if you remember, in the old building, he would sit there and just smoke all the time, <laughs> continuously, even though it was illegal. And people would try to stop him, and then he would just keep smoking right after they left his office. Is that and the can imagine? reason he didn't get confirmed? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so I think if you look at years. pictures, he's smoking a pipe during some of these. <laughs> but I just love the idea of uh, Arthur Brooks trying, you know, sort of peering into the cave <laughs> and then taking one toe over the line of the cave. And then, uh, you know, George Bork, uh, would you mind not smoking in the room? And then running for it, just running for it. Arthur's not going to take on the bear in his cave. Anyway, so Bork's view, so Bork is really the great intellectual of this in our time, even before Scalia. Uh, Scalia was a guy on the Supreme Court who actually did it, but Bork was the one who wrote books, articles about it. And his view was, you don't want the courts to be part of that. You know, if conservatives are going to win, win at the ballot box, win at the elections, and then you have the right under our system to put into place conservative policies. But if you start doing it through the courts, you, one, are just as bad as the liberals and corrupting our institution, you know, making every institution about politics. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, two, I think Bork's, uh, Bork actually, despite what happened to him, he loved the courts. He loved the judiciary and the law. And so his view was, you will also ruin uh, the American court system and turn it into just another branch of the legislature or another branch of politics or another branch of a party. And that would be harmful to the American experiment in, in you know, our kind of Republican government. I don't, I don't, I tend uh, to side on the Bork Scalia uh, view of things, but, but it's, uh, I, I think it's certainly something open to debate that conservatives should uh, figure out. I think it's healthy that we have 
this debate. I will tell you, it will scare the hell out of liberals if conservatives one of these days say, oh, we're not going to do restraint anymore. We're actually going to use the courts the way you use them on us. Because they, they kind of have it perfect in a way. They, when they're in control, they use the courts for their own purposes. And then they were out of control. They say, you conservatives, just respect the precedents that we created and don't mess around. So for those in our audience who follow your work, they know that you write and talk on Fox and elsewhere about a lot of different issues. Mm. Every time you're on Fox, it seems to be something new. Which Next time it'll be Tiger King they'll ask you about. <laughs> I'm on the side of the tiger. I haven't watched it, but I want the tiger to win. Is <laughs> it like true. between him and the tiger about who's going to eat the, who's going to eat who? No. Look, it's, it's just like golf. We want tiger to win. But <laughs> You recently authored a piece yeah. with an AI visiting fellow about China's role in all this and whether China owes us. I mean, look, we had Congressman Dan Crenshaw on last episode, and he was talking about a movement, in, in a bipartisan movement, actually, to get China to pay. But how do you get them to pay? That seems like you know an easy thing to order up, just like talking about Mexico paying for a wall. But how do you get China to actually pay for the damage they've caused? Uh, I don't think it's as hard as people expect. It's just more whether we're willing to do it. But there's lots of ways to make them pay. Uh, in the article itself, which I wrrote with uh, Avana Stradner there, who's a Kirkpatrick fellow, what a great title. Do you guys have any fancy titles like Bolton <laughs> Fellow? I'm, I'm the John U podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> You guys ought to. You guys ought to go on strike. Say you're not going to show up to work unless you get a title. That's great. Um, so we, you know, most of the piece, as, as you say, was about criticizing China and what they've done, which a lot of conservatives are doing. But you say that you're right. The hard question is, what's the remedy? That's like often a question in law. You might have a right, but what's your remedy? And so the remedy here, I think, there's a lot of things we can do which go much farther than just sort of cutting the budget of the WHO. I mean, so big deal. Like China's not going to change its behavior. Uh, one important point is we should think about it in terms of politics and finance, because what China is essentially doing is like polluting. There, you know, there's no enforcement in international politics. There's no supranational government or courts or police. So it's as if you, a lot of it is actually very similar to the way law studies neighbors and how they behave. So this is exactly like you had a neighbor who likes to do something which pollutes your land. And in those cases, your neighbor's going to keep doing it because he gets all the benefit, like he's burning leaves or he's, you know, flushing, you know, his waste down a stream. You're on the downstream side, you get all the costs. He's never going to stop unless he suffers the same costs. That's the only way you get people to stop doing destructive behavior in this kind of world. And so you have to, you have to make China feel the physical, physically feel the economic costs of what it's doing to the rest of the world. Otherwise, they're still going to do whatever they were doing. Eat bats, eat, I don't know, armored anteaters they look like on the pictures. Um, I, I hope you guys use the pictures of the deep fried bats as, you know, show notes for this podcast. They're really quite appetizing, I find. Um, or if the, some of the accounts you saw, like Tom Cotton raising, maybe it was the, you know, the Chinese Wuhan CDC or Institute of Virology and they're going to keep doing what they're doing, right? Because they suffer. In fact, China comes out of this ahead. You know, they suffer some costs. You know, they, they, maybe they have 40,000 deaths. Maybe they have 100,000 deaths. This is a regime that has inflicted tens of millions of deaths on their own people to stay in power. And they ruin the economies of the rest of the world. 
uh, right? They're imposing trillions of dollars of costs on the rest of They have this great opportunity to expand their influence at our expense, right? Whether it was accidental or not, they're gonna, they're gonna benefit out of this in terms of global politics. So how do you get them to stop? You make them uh, suffer the same economic losses they're imposing on everybody else. So how do you do that? Well, so one thing we, uh, you know, we propose a variety of different things that are our usual playbook, economic sanctions, sanctioning leaders, uh, cutting off uh, the ability of the regime elite and their children to go to U.S. schools, uh, cutting off research opportunities. But I think you could do things that are much more aggressive. Uh, I think China is actually quite vulnerable in a lot of ways, which we could talk about. But you see that vulnerability in, that, in this Belt of Road initiative, their efforts to invest and buy companies abroad and infrastructure. The good thing about that is that they now have hundreds of billions of dollars sitting vulnerable all around the world. And the U.S. and these countries could just take take it. They just, you know, the, take Greece or Italy, where China, under the Belt and Road Initiative, has control of the Port of Piraeus in Athens now, or has control of different companies in Italy. Italy and Greece could just expropriate and seize those companies and say, we're not doing it for our own benefit. We're going to use the money to pay compensation to our own citizens. And China, you know, they should suffer the loss of what they did. Um, this is something countries have done off and on for centuries, including us. We've done it many times. We did it to Great Britain after the Revolutionary War. We did it to Cuba uh, after the Cuban Revolution. We did it to Iran after the Iranian Revolution. The other way to look at it would be, you know, from an economic perspective, you could either raise the costs or you could pay them to stop, is what the economists yeah. would say, too. But, of course, with China, they can't stop because the whole system is based around these same mechanisms of repression and, you know, opaqueness that gave rise to the virus and they can't change it without throwing the whole system at risk. But can you say a bit, you know, when you talk about, everyone's talked about the WHO so much and, you know, now it's essentially become a battle line between people who say, who like Trump or who at least sympathize with what he's saying and say, we need to cut funding the WHO or people who say the WHO is just another scapegoat of Trumpian politics. Um, but more broadly, whether it's a WHO or just the UN, it seems like, I mean, there's such a schism between people who say we need to have some kind of international organization for this exact reason, to coordinate a global response. And yet at the same time, this really just shows how impotent these organizations are and how little they've done to help so far. Is there any way to fix that? Should we even be trying to fix international organizations or is this a call for us to get back to sovereignty to our own countries and just do what we can to strengthen ourselves because no one else is gonna take care of us? Yeah, you you are channeling your inner Bolton. Very good. Yes, very good. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I work I work closely with I work closely with Ivana Stradner. At uh, so, <laughs> I, I so I think there is a place for international institutions, and uh, I think what the interesting question is: what does it look like going forward? The pro anti Trump politics part is the timing. You know, you could say if you're a critic of Trump, there's a time to question whether the WHO or other international institutions should exist or be changed. Just wait till after the pandemic's over. Uh, you know, so, and, or you could say, look, they were a handmaiden to all of this, right? They should uh, suffer some kind of sanction because they spread all this disinformation, whether they believed it or not, on behalf of uh, China and its interests. But that doesn't mean you don't want to have any international institutions at all. The problem is that the WHO does have a good purpose behind it, but I think it's become corrupted and captured by China. And actually there's China systematically doing that, not just there, but all kinds of 
institutions that the United States created at the end of World War II. And so I, I think what's going to happen, this is all speculation, but I think this would be a good uh, foreign policy for us, would be to go back and look at the way it was during the Cold War. If you think about it, the Soviets and their bloc had their own weird institutions, you know, like they had the Warsaw Pact, we had NATO, you know, they had their, the common turn, whatever the hell that was. I mean, I never got to go to one. It sounded like a great party. Um, and we had, you know, the United Nations. So I think what's going to happen is that whether you pull out of the WHO and set up your own uh, alternate parallel institution, or you just change the WHO to exclude China, I think you're going to have two separate sets of institutions. Because what's happening, whether, and the, the pandemic just showed it clearly to most people, is that China is trying to corrupt all of the institutions we built after World War II to try to turn them towards their vision of what the international order should be and to, you know, destroy ours. And you could, some people say the pandemic is doing, is accelerating that. Don't you think the pandemic is clearly causing all these problems in Europe? With the European Union, you know, our one long-standing goal of American foreign policy is to have a European Union, have them more responsible for their own defense. China loves it if Germany and France won't send masks to Italy. They, they love it if there's a lack of cooperation in Europe. So I think with the, the if I'm like putting on my Bolton hat now, it is very heavy. I'm getting a neck cramp already <laughs> just putting it on. But if I put on my Bolton, well, it's just called let me put on my Bolton battle helmet. <laughs> on my Bolton battle helmet. And mustache. Like, Don't forget yeah, mustache. and the mustache. Well, that, that comes flips down like a little uh, mic on the side. Um, I'll tell you this funny joke. I had a cartoon friend who wanted to actually, cartoonist friend who actually wanted to make a poster for Bolton's presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. It was a great poster. All it was was a, a white background and then just a mustache. <laughs> and everyone knew who it was. It was awesome. But alas, the campaign didn't take off. So, <laughs> but if you were, you know you put your Bolton hat on, what you would say is let's. It's just kind of like the Iraq War, where you had okay, the UN's not going to approve our intervention, but we will put together a coalition of democracies that'll go in with us. Uh, that might be the model for the future. We're not going to have a WHO that includes China or Russia or Iran or North Korea, but we will have a World Health Organization that includes all the democracies the wealthy industrial countries, and they will still help poor countries. They will still coordinate research, try to detect diseases early and develop cures, but we're not going to include these clearly hostile authoritarian repressive regimes, which are only trying to twist it to their own purposes. That takes, that's the kind of work that the State Department is built for. And I think that would be a good positive strategy for, uh, you know, for the rest of Trump's uh, time in office. If we do get into this Cold War-like situation. So Max Frost and I play a board game all the time called Twilight Struggle, where you have to win the allegiances of different countries around the world. Isn't that just like Risk without the dice? Well, you know, I've got my laptop sitting on two (laughs) two Risk board games right now, actually. Really? Yeah, I've got to go play a game. It's much much more complex than Risk. You have a deck of cards with historical events, and you play them against each other. But really, this has a point. It is a boy. Really, I mean, I got to say, board game board technology has not advanced very much since I last played thirty years ago. (laughs) No. (laughs) <laughs> my, my grandpa's been playing the same game of Monopoly for like 80 years now. <laughs> but uh, my question is, isn't there a big risk though that a lot of, uh, pun intended, risk, uh, that a lot mm. of countries might not side with us? Because I mean, let's say we set up two parallel institutions where we mm. have our own NATO and the China has their own Warsaw Pact analog. 
I mean, China has a lot of money. They've obviously been trying to buy off a lot of states and they have, they don't ask very much. We want all of our, we want our allies to respect basic liberal rights. China doesn't. I mean, how, how worrying would it be if we tried to set up two parallel organizations that China would actually attract far more countries than we could? Well, that, you know, Matt, that's kind of what happened during the Cold War. You know, it was there was the Soviet side and the America-led side, and they actually were they competed for the allegiance of countries, particularly in Latin America and Africa. Yeah, and actually, it turned out I think, and maybe this is what would happen with China with the Belt and Road Initiative. They ended up wasting enormous amounts of resources trying to get these countries to support them uh, all to naught. Uh, and so. You could say it's a matter of strategy that we don't care about every country in the world signing on with us. If you go back to, I don't know, George Kennan or strategists, they say there are only certain parts of the world that are key strategic places because of their wealth and industrial ability. You know, East Asia, the Western Hemisphere, and Western, now Eastern Europe are the key places. And then sometimes the Middle East, people have debates about that. Um, they used to be because of oil, but that may not be a factor anymore. And if you, you know, you want to include those first and give yourself a security. I can't see if we were to go ahead and do this, that Europe is going to sign on with China. You know, despite the fact they have lots of money, you can see what they're doing to countries uh, uh, that accept it, even countries that don't accept it. They're, you know, I, I like to remind people that the Chinese Communist Party has launched war. I mean, it's allegedly peaceful and so on. They've launched wars with almost every one of their neighbors during their time in power. They've gone to war with the Soviet Union. They attacked us in Korea. You know, they've gone to war with Vietnam. You go on and on. They're not by nature a peaceful, uh, non-aggressive regime. Um, and so I think countries have long memories. I mean, even in this period where we don't know what's happening, the thing that strikes me about Asia, uh, you know, just spending a lot of time there and traveling there, is people in Asia want to be allied with the United States. They actually would like the idea that the United States is being invited by Vietnam to set up a naval base in Cameron Bay, where they kicked us out of after right, the Vietnamese Vietnam War, is an incredible turnaround. Uh, so I, I, I don't actually lack confidence that if we were going to compete with a kind of China-led Warsaw Pact that we won't win in the end because I do think, and this is kind of an AEI, maybe that's why I'm an AEI optimist. I do think that free minds and free markets and free politics eventually do persuade people to sign on with the United States. You've also recently written about how, I think also in the Fox Business one. Wait, wait is this like a cross-examination? You're not even in law school yet. <laughs> Jesus. On November the 23rd. <laughs> Please I'm... read what you wrote right here, the highlighted passage only. Thank you. Well, well you know... <laughs> Talk about how we tolerate a lot of yeah. risk, suffering, even death in the United States with our policies because sort of economic viability and basic living. Hmm. And for example, a lot of people bring up the, the, the more simple instances of in a severe flu season, we don't shut down the economy. We also aren't draconian in terms of how we manage health choices of our citizens, whether that's smoking or choices that lead to obesity. Yeah, and we haven't banned McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. And I would go to the mat to protect McDonald's. Because <laughs> exactly. I don't know, you know, if you listen to my podcast, you know the McRib is holy in, the, <laughs> in my household. Well, the, the example you brought up was, suppose something like you raise the fuel efficiency standard for vehicles, that leads to lighter cars, which lead to more deaths. And so, you know, there's a lot of new information coming out now 
from uh, your neck of the woods, uh, the, the Stanford study, and more recently the study from USC that was released yesterday about how this disease is very widespread or, or that uh, the virus is very widespread, perhaps 25 or 50 times more. So my question is, are we, you know, at what point do governments say this is, this is the basic trade-off we make all the time between economic viability, the functioning of our society, and, and risk? You know, are we getting to that point based on the new information you've seen? Actually, I think that's inherent in every government decision. There's something I didn't really appreciate as well uh, until I was in government was a lot of the most, first of all, we should only want the government to make hard decisions for us. If they're easy decisions, what do we need them to make them for, right? That's why they, we pay them the big money. And all these decisions are trade-offs. Every government decision is a trade-off whether you want to admit it or not. And so that's why, uh, to your point, I, I think the state governor should be explaining how they make these uh, trade-offs. And the trade-offs, exactly as you say, uh, we are effectively deciding um, to try to reduce the number of infected and deaths, right? That's the benefit. The cost is almost zero economic activity for uh, now more than a month. You know, there are, are the American economy generates $2 trillion in GDP a month. If we're taught, if we're even 70% of the economy is closed, we're talking about, you know, one, uh, one and three course trillion dollars we're losing. And then talk about all the government money we're spending to try to float the economy back up. So we have really lost a lot of resources for the price of trying to get, right. We're trying to reduce the number of deaths in the country. We do that all the time. As you say, every government regulation effectively does that in one way or the other, like car mileage requirements, air safety requirements, and you could just go uh, pollution requirements. They're all trade-offs. They're not, they're not all one thing is perfect and there's no costs on the other side. And so I think you could say maybe what we did initially was necessary. The extreme lockdowns, which another way of thinking of it is in a normal epidemic, epidemic, what we try to do to minimize civil liberty losses is we quarantine individuals who have the disease and might get it ideally, right? Detection and tracing. What all of our states are doing is just quarantining everybody, regardless of whether you have it or not. In fact, you know, 90, over 98%, 99% of the people you're sticking inside don't have it and are not at risk of spreading it, just to prevent, because we don't have an idea who actually has it in the body. And that's a huge economic cost. At some point, that's not necessary anymore. Right? At some point, because of medical advances and whatever flattening the curve or not, or the disease is not as lethal as we thought it was because we were depending on false Chinese data, Maybe this, you know, lots of, that's what the Stanford and USC studies actually indicate is a lot of people have it. They don't even know it because a lot of people don't have any symptoms. You get it and it actually doesn't harm you. The question is, is the, I hate to say it this way, but the real question of regulation is you, the marginal lives you are saving, right? Suppose in California, 50,000 people would have died if we hadn't done this and we've gotten it down to 20,000 or 10,000. Actually, the estimate, the numbers coming in are much lower than the estimates. Mm -hmm. Was it worth shutting down California's $225 billion a month economy? It's, I, I hate to say that, but that's every government decision involves that kind of trade-off, whether you just have to be honest about it. Well, I think it was, I think it was Governor Cuomo who said, it's worth it if it's, say, it's one life, which is, shows that 
if they're making the cost benefit calculation. Yeah. Well, he's, exactly he's a, just, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, not a, not uh, a rigorous yeah, calculation. You, yeah, you could say, oh, well, why don't you put five times more police officers on the street of New York City then? Well, that's right? politically, yeah. politically, yeah. that's not yeah. possible. <laughs> that, but that would, right, that would reduce, you know, yeah. one, at least one life from murder, but we and, don't do that, right? And it would help your new favorite stat of NYPD's bigger than the FBI. <laughs> 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 Let me also um, say for the record that the NYPD, if it was hand-to-hand -hand combat, would kick the hell out of the FBI. <laughs> the FBI is just like, they, I, they just want to file FISA warrants. <laughs> so I, 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 think we're I think we're just about out of time here. Um, if it's you don't over? Mind. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's going to – You didn't call ask gonna... me anything hard yet. <laughs> what's, a, what's, what's a hard question? <laughs> no, no, don't trouble um, yourself. I'm, I'm racking I'm racking my brain. Uh, Okay, how about, so uh, oh, what I've do you think? Who, who would win? One thing you didn't get to, we, you asked, but I didn't answer was how do you restart the economy? That's also outside Trump's control. That's got to be state yeah. governors too, right? Because uh, there's no power that Congress has passed and given to the president saying, uh, you know, the federal government has the right to reopen businesses. And then your questions are quite right. What if the restaurant owners still don't want to reopen their businesses because they're worried about their health or worried about their customers' health? So you got to... It's got to be cooperative effort between Trump and the state governors. And this is the beauty of federalism. We didn't get to this before. Is there's nothing wrong. You seem to think, you read the press, you think there's something wrong with states doing things at different times. That's actually not so bad because states are different. You know, dense places like LA and New York, they might want to lift the lockdowns later because there are so many people in those limited spaces, the disease could still come back quickly. Does it seem to me they should reopen on the same schedule as Wyoming or South Dakota? And then the last point about this federalism issue is that uh, you know it it does lead to uh, perhaps slow policy, right? Maybe there is a right answer about opening and shutting down, and our system doesn't allow one government to do that. On the other hand, we have you know the fancy phrase these days with institutional studies is resilience. How do we build resilient institutions? I'm sure that's what they're talking about over Brookings right now. Resilience. The real thing about resilience is if you have a federal system of government, you have multiple governments. So say one government makes a mistake. That doesn't mean the whole country is screwed. Right. In fact, you could say if you're a critic of what Trump did and he didn't impose a lock, he couldn't impose it, but he didn't recommend a lockdown soon enough. That didn't prevent other states from acting faster. And so we are, I think actually federalism is something you do if you, and this may be another AEI principle, if you don't have a lot of faith that we actually know enough to have the perfect public policy now. Federalism creates a kind of trial and error system. You can have all kinds of different responses all through the country. And so you would adopt federalism if you were risk averse in a way. You were worried about government making more mistakes than getting it right. And you have resilient institutions so that Right. Suppose one state gets knocked out or makes a terrible mistake like New York, maybe. California is doing actually comparatively much, much better than New York because we're a different government. What, do, do you worry now, say, say you live in Georgia, where admittedly- I'm You know how often I wish I lived in Georgia and not <laughs> Berkeley, California. I mean, I think about it all the time. Uh, the, I mean, the, the headlines all over yesterday, though, with the governor saying they're going to reopen, you know, mm. reopen Georgia, whatever that really means. Uh, is that the governor peaches for everybody? Yeah, yeah, the beaches. The beaches, <laughs> the peaches are open. no peaches. <laughs> oh, peaches pe for everybody. Peaches and beaches. Yeah. But um, you know, with the headline now that is that the governor didn't even consult the mayor of Atlanta, and you know, it's this political calculation. He's going to get Trump's thanks and applause in this case. Mm -hmm. 
Does, does that worry you that this whole reopening process is going to become completely subject to, to political whims, or is that what it should be? This should be a completely political decision because the politics represent what the people want. Yeah, I, that goes to Max's question about the trade-off. Uh, you, you could maybe say there is no right answer to the trade-off because the trade-off about shutdowns versus say, you know, reducing the spread of the disease is, is a political, that, in fact, if you wanted any decision, I think, to be made by the electorate, it would be that one, right? How much economic activity do you want to trade off, you know, right? That's affecting the poor more than the wealthy. Do you want to trade off versus paying any price to save a single life? Uh, I, th I would actually want politicians to make that choice because that's why we elect them. That's not, and this is a kind of thing about expertise. That's not something Dr. Fauci or, you know, people with MDs can decide. Here's a, the comparison to, to the law. Even we still, even when we try people, put them on trial for their lives, we still put it up to a jury because the jury is just like a miniature version of the people. We still want the people to decide the trade-offs in the end, not doctors, not scientists. Uh, there's no expertise, really. The experts can tell you the values. You know, Max was going through, you know, what's this value, this variable, that variable. But the trade-off is still about what's reasonable. And that's up, I think, to the people. So, you know, in Georgia, that's up to each state, right? If Georgia wants to have a system where the governor controls it and not cities, they can go ahead. In California, actually, the counties uh, put into place a lockdown well before the state government did. But it's up to each state on how it wants to organize itself, too. But I do, I am much more comfortable with having the voters, you know, politicians make that choice than uh, experts. I won't say whether or not we disagree. I don't think we do. But, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a very enlightening and interesting episode for us. Good. I'm glad you guys – I hope you guys had a good time. I did. I'm going to get a McRib right after this. You know, the bad thing about this whole thing is I think the Shamrock Shake was pulled out early. Oh, no. It was oh, pulled, no. You know, because the ultimate culinary experience is a McRib combined with a Shamrock <laughs> Shake. Thank you all for listening, and thank you, John, you again for joining us. As a reminder, if you liked this podcast, please leave a review. I said this last week, and a few of you actually uh, listened to me. First review said, outstanding podcast. There are many podcasts out there. This one is the best. One thing that makes it stand out is the pace and consistent relevance of interview substance. No fill conversation. Interviewers are extremely well prepared to make the most of their time with first-class thought leaders. That that actually sounds like one of our moms wrote it. <laughs> are, we, are we the first class thought leaders or the guests? <laughs> well, no, no, the guests are the thought leaders, but we are the extremely well prepared interviewers. Un it. Unfortunately, the second comment we got was not as positive. Uh, the the headline is "Three's a crowd." I love the podcast, but there's really no reason to have three hosts. Guests are great, and I enjoy the topics, but three is a crowd. Uh, that was from G. Boyan. G. Boyan, uh, thank you for not specifying which host you want to remove. Yeah. That would have made this incredibly awkward. I mean, guys, it was implied. They want me to stay. <laughs> Come on. You, you read that subject. Well, line you know, no, one, no one ever complained about the number of hosts <laughs> until you got involved with the show, man. Yeah, uh, well. We'll consider that. But in these trying times, as much as we're socially distancing, it's important to maintain connections and not slice them away. So that, you know, is, that is true. Normal, we'll cut this down to two hosts, something. I mean, the virus might cut it down to two hosts itself. <laughs> yeah, natural <laughs> selection may do it. So. Uh, but uh, Boyan, thank you for leaving a review, even though I'm, I'm not super crazy about, about what you wrote. But 
Beggars can't be choosers. Please uh, join them and leave reviews and five-star ratings when you can. All right, today we're going to do bring back the watch, read, listen segment where each of us goes around and shares something that we watched, read, or listened to in the last week that is worthy of your attention. So, Max Frost, why don't you kick us off out of Glen Falls, New York? Sure. Thanks for that, Max Dewey. Uh, I would say something I watched in the last week was on Bill Maher's show Friday night. He interviewed two former banter guests, one Andrew Sullivan, the other Congressman Dan Crenshaw, who's on the show in the last episode. Um, the interview with Congressman Crenshaw in particular was great. Bill Maher is a raging liberal, and he tried to take it to Dan Crenshaw, and Congressman Crenshaw gave it right back. And without Bill Maher's studio audience there to back him up, he couldn't really defend himself. And it was a great conversation, I thought, good interview. The one with Andrew Sullivan, also excellent. Uh, if you remember the episode we did with him, it was one of our favorites, and we always enjoy hearing him talk. Matt Weinstein, what do you have? I've got two things. First is, as uh, John, you mentioned in the interview, his interview with uh, John Stewart back when John Stewart was doing the Daily Show back in 2010. If you just, I had never seen it before. If you just Google John Yu Daily Show or John Yu, uh, John Stewart, all the headlines all just say, the left admits John Yu just owned John Stewart. And it was, it was nice. You know, as someone in, I guess, middle and high school and college to, to an extent when Jon Stewart was really in his heyday, he was basically the Pope among liberals. And whatever he said, people just thought it was, you know, it was like God giving the tabernacle to Moses. Like it was, it was just gospel. And it was nice to see the audience and Jon Stewart just rendered speechless. For, it, the interview went on for about 25 minutes. They've got the whole unedited version on, online. And yeah, John, you just answered in a calm, rational manner. And John Stewart, John Stewart was trying to uh, entrap him and gotcha questions, and he just totally failed. So that's one. Second, uh, more relevant is Nick Everstead has a new essay out. He's one of AEI's foreign policy scholars called "The New Normal: Thoughts About the Shape of Things to Come in the Post-Pandemic World." He put that out with the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm not going to try to summarize it because I will not do it justice, but Nick Eberstadt is one of the most astute observers out there, and he raises a lot of very thought-provoking questions in this essay, so I highly recommend you check it out. My watch, read, listen is a watch. I watched the three-part Bill Gates documentary on Netflix, which is, is quite well done. It's very promotional of the Gates Foundation work. They're doing a lot of good work. My comment is really a minor detail is he's attacking polio outbreaks in Africa primarily, but also Southeast Asia. And he was talking about the challenge of containing and eliminating polio. And one of the challenges they had, they don't even have accurate maps of Nigeria. They don't know where towns are. I thought cartography was perfected like 25 years ago. I know this, there's a demographic component here. But what's up with the lack of maps in Nigeria? That's, that was just sort of an eye-opening moment where I was, I was wondering, they don't know where that town is? I mean, it has thousands of people. Um, so that was a little surprising, but, you know. Max, Max, I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I would guess maybe these are like shanty towns, and it's just people coming in from the countryside as the big city setting up slums. You know, so it's like they don't constantly update the maps when these things are built. Hey, to a Westerner. Satellites, you know. You can look at us. I can go on Google Earth and see where towns are. Well, you know, Max, to a Westerner like you from New York, uh, known as, uh, not my words, kind of one of the more elitist states, you know, I'm sure you would look at it as a shanty town, but to a lot of people, it's home. 
And I think we should have maps that reflect hometowns of great people like, like those Nigerians. So Tui, what is the name of that documentary again and how can I watch it? It's called Inside Bill's Brain. It's still on Netflix. Climb in there. <laughs> Climb in there. All right, that is all the time we have for you this week, but we will be back again with another quarantine episode next week. Stay tuned for that, and we're looking forward to speaking to you again. Hold on, can you hear my parents? I, that I time that, I yeah. could. <laughs>